how can I pay these people to come to America and give our church a red know, light? Right? <laughs> Put it in a newspaper. <laughs> I'm pretty sure the red light can be seen from space and over your church, man. I think that's the uh... <laughs> No, but this is this, this thing of the not, Great Wall of not... China and Church of the Great <laughs> <Good> Shepherd. <laughs> Welcome to the Stand Firm Podcast. We are recording this episode on Wednesday, September 27th, 2023. I'm Nick Lannon of Grace Anglican Church in Louisville, Kentucky, and I'm here with Matt Kennedy of the Anglican Church of the Good Shepherd in Binghamton, New York, and J.D. Koch of St. Luke's Anglican Church on Hilton Head Island, South Carolina. How are you guys today? Wonderful. Yeah, great, Nick. Thanks. Matt Kennedy, you have a new set of stairs. Do you still have all your fingers? I do. I do. This is the first project of this magnitude I've ever pulled off. <laughs> and uh, I'm pretty impressed with myself. I'm, you I'm... crowdsourced help on the internet. <laughs> was that actually helpful? It was. I used a lot. Of, I used a lot of the advice. It was good advice. You know, ultimately, I, people were wanting me to cut my own stringers. Those are the things that go from the, the, the wall to the floor to hold the stairs up. But I decided at the end, I'm going to buy some. And I cut them to size, yeah. which, was, which was wise. So, Pre-made. Um, yeah, pre-made stuff. It was great. So, I feel like I'm. I feel like I'm like actually a, a man. Like you can like go f- <laughs> yeah to war with a giant, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I remember the first time I changed my own oil. I felt like I could do anything. There was nothing in the world that could stop me. <laughs> well, I'm glad that your stairs are now walkable. You have the fall and winter. It's I guess it's already winter where you are. So you 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 need to. It's, yeah, it's like, yeah, it's, this morning it was 41, it's going to freeze in about two weeks. Yeah, yeah. The Binghamton life. Still haven't put any socks on yet. Yeah, right. Still, still, have, still don't have socks on. <laughs> the trek to Planet Fitness will take on a whole new meeting when it's 30 degrees yeah. outside. Well, we'll just, we'll just dig ourselves out to go to the gym. We might just yeah. not go to the gym. <laughs> <laughs> we'll turn this into a video podcast at that point. It's the swelling of Matt Kennedy. <laughs> well, we thought we'd talk this week about an issue that's been growing over the last several years, the seeming embarrassment of well or high-placed Christians, those in government or with other influential positions, their embarrassment of their brothers and sisters in Christ and their seeming desire to associate with influential non-Christians more than with ma and pa evangelical in the pew. We've seen this kind of thing famously with David French, Russell Moore, Francis Collins. I think the thing that pushed the three of us into this conversation today is the current Holy Post podcast series, Why Are You Still a Christian?, which implicitly asks this question, why do you still hang out with those embarrassing people? So guys, if Christians believe that friendship with the world is enmity with God, as James 4.4 4 teaches, what's going on? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting. I think that a lot of of evangelicals have really bought into this this idea that for our um, for the Christian faith to have validity or for it to be able to be communicated effectively to people in the world, it has to have some kind of respectability. It has to have some kind of cultural credit credential uh, credentials. And so, I, I don't know if you guys remember the book uh, by I think it was Mark Knoll, mm-hmm. uh, Scandal of uh, the Evangelical Mind. Scandal of Evangelical Mind, and that book was really monumental because it it, it told evangelicals that, that you know we're we're not like fundamentalists who who shut themselves off from uh, from society 
uh, and and kind of create their own little siloed theological realm, we're even the very definition of evangelical is that we are relating to the world, we're engaging with the world. And to do that, we have to have the best science, we have to have the best scientists, the best uh, liter- uh, literary scholars, the best in the, in all of the um, academic endeavors, Christians should be known for their for their scholarly ascendancy, and so that becomes this kind of kind of clarion call for a lot of people. And and I don't know if Mark, I don't think Mark Noel actually meant it this way back then. Although now I, I hear he's gone pretty far off the reservation, but back then I think the original idea was, hey, let's let's not neglect the sciences or the arts or the or, or scholarship. But it kind of morphed into over time. We really, really, really need the top scientists to think that the Christian Christians are acceptable. We really need academia to to think that that Christians can make a valid argument on on various matters. And when and when there are those Christians who kind of cross over from the purely kind of theological world uh, and are and actually have credibility in in this in the secular world, if when those scholars arise, boy, we need to glom onto them and. and get them to be our flag bearers um so the world will know we're not ignorant and dumb right so so that was back in the what two 1990s right i think it's when that book came out and using the familiar categories we've used in this show many many times that was that was neutral world that was that was a time when um the world was not hostile that our culture was was not as hostile um it may be positive. Yeah, Aaron right. Renz, we're using his his taxonomy. That's that would still positive world. You know, Jarvis right. Clay. Yeah, you, okay, you so could wear uh, what would Jesus do bracelets and still whatever. you know be elected class president. <laughs> for instance, <laughs> he okay, said with so particular now, knowledge. Well, that's completely changed now, um, and so you have these the, the crossover. You know, stars of our day are like Francis Collins or or or, or, or someone like that who does have a you know a, a university science quote-unquote science cred though the culture has completely shifted those who still kind of take that mark null tack still think it's super important to have the secular world celebrate the accomplishments of the church and so they're super embarrassed by people like us who (laughs) who 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 openly and without any kind of veiling or nuance or or Mincing words say that the LGBT community is not really a community; it's just a gathering together of people who are who are indulging in their own sin, and that's completely embarrassing. And it, and you can't say that anymore and be acceptable in in the secular world. So there's people like KK DeMay, who's not a Christian because she's she's affirming, but there's people like KK DeMay who feels super embarrassed by us, who really wants the secular gender studies professors to think to think that she's an acceptable scholar. And so she's thrown over Jesus in order to have that, have that cred and people who also feel the same kind of embarrassment are along with her. That's my, that's my, that's my read of it. What do you think, Jamie? No, I, think, I think you're right. I mean, there's an off quoted statement. I don't know who it's attributed to, but I think it goes back to the fundamentalist modernist controversy where they said, you know, I'll call you a Christian. If you call me an academic I don't, um, or a scholar or something like this, you know, and I think there's a lot of that, um, uh, desire for respectability and, um, you know, that, that really permeates a certain academic type, you know, which is not relegated simply to Christianity. I mean, I was in the 
you know, upper level academics um, and, you know, the insecurity and sort of imposter syndrome uh, is a real thing, you know, because the more you drill down on one particular topic, the more you realize you don't know, you know, certainly you don't know everything about that. And there's a heck of a lot more that you didn't even consider. And that's one of the one of the eye opening experiences of, of, you know, high level academic discourse. But if you top of that, a sort of a religious veneer that is from the outset suspicious puts you in a sort of intellectually suspicious place. Well, then you get, um, well, at least I've just observed, you get doubly insecure. And so then you have this frenetic uh, energy behind this pandering to the those above you in particular, you know, better institutions, better schools, and any affirmation like scraps you can get from these people um, are, is, is, is like a drug. I mean, it's, and I've just seen it firsthand. Um, you know, the number of people that that you've watched who have had to um, twist their their former, we should say, sort of biblical orthodox convictions about things, not merely uh, rele re relegated to sexuality, but we're talking about like, you know, well, the most classic, at least in the modern times, the virgin birth, you know, that, that was the big, sort of one of the catalysts back in the 19th century, you know, that began to be um, the the shibboleth for whether or not you were a legitimate scholar or not, you know, and it just sort of whittled away. Um, over time, any of the sort of offensive sounding classic Christian doctrines and convictions. And I've seen people even to this day who, even if they privately hold these things in order to have positions of of prestige or um, sophistication or, you know, bylines in particular areas, have to at the very least minimize their beliefs, if not outright, just keep them keep them quiet. You know, I mean, getting, you know, one can imagine at a, at a upper high level research institution in a religious studies department, like you'd be very hard pressed to have any sort of um, explicit Christian convictions, or at least they couldn't come out in any, um, you know, like a lecture series on historic biblical proofs of the resurrection or something like that, you know, and I, and I know people who have, who have acknowledged that and have rejected quote unquote um, Christian academia for that very reason, you know, and said that if, if you get into this, you're going to have to come to a point where you either forfeit your soul or um, you're going to, in fact, worse, lose your convictions. And so I think um, what we're watching is this kind of this this it's really sad to watch, in fact, because it's so it's so clearly from the Christian perspective seen for what it is, which is a pandering, you know, sort of sitting there um, outside the door, just hoping that you'll get a glimpse of the of the real tenured professors as they walk the hallowed halls, while, you know, at the same time, having very little practical effect on changing the attitudes of legitimate Christian people. You know, I don't think I don't think there's a lot of people who hold to traditional sort of biblical Christian convictions who are getting persuaded by the Holy Post podcast to somehow give up their give up their convictions. I mean, it's it's not happening, but it is a pep rally for the deconstructing pious unbelievers, which is what um, increasingly is the case in, um, amongst this this group. I think the flip side of the coin is true, too, which only serves to move the proverbial Overton window, which is that when somebody attains a certain level of fame or notoriety or celebrity, you'll start hearing things like, oh, I heard so-and-so is a Christian. Uh, I remember this was true with like Britney Spears when she became a thing. I heard Britney Spears is a Christian. I remember we did an episode way back when uh, the prosperity gospel really preacher, alone, Nick. The, the prosperity <laughs> gospel preacher, Todd White had that one 
sermon where he sort of like repented of everything and started preaching the gospel. And we were all like, oh my gosh, Todd White's a Christian. So we, we sort of have this Christian in name only phenomenon a little bit where some of the people who attain these levels are not actually by any historical definition Christians. And so when they later say crazy things and we've stamped them already with Christian, then we're, we're very hesitant as we've seen to call somebody not a Christian. Goodness gracious, that's like setting off an atomic bomb. But we have not only Christians who give up things to get there, we have people who have gotten there who we're calling Christians who aren't. That's right. Yeah. And then and then when they get there, whether they were a Christian on the way or become one, then it's almost inevitable or it seems that they don't actually exert any of the responsible influence that they've been given uh, in whatever whatever capacity as a Christian. So, you know, you famously you have the the what they um, sometimes call the Kennedy compromise on uh, Roman Catholics in politics. You know, you can somehow privately be a Roman Catholic, but you're not going to, you know, legislate, for instance, like against abortion, the way the Catholic Church would have you. And you have so you have, you know, everywhere from local school boards to the presidency, you have people who are purporting to be Christians who are only considered to be, quote unquote, good uh, politicians when they they totally betray their Christian convictions at every point. So you're saying, you know, we need another category for you because you, you know, the the idea of, of being a Christian is to actually comport your life in a Christian way and then exercise the authority that you would confess has been providentially given to you in God's um, sovereignty. And yet you are, you know, you're, you're considered to be a, a good Christian Republican governor, for instance, when you don't veto that, you know, abortion bill, or you, you're a good Christian, you know, school board member, when you don't allow your values in any way to influence, you know, the curriculum or the, or the sort of books that you have in your library and so on and so forth. And it goes down. I mean, we even see this in churches, you know, like you're the good pastor because you're not as hard lined or as dogmatic as my old pastor was. And you're kind of cooler than, you know, than he was because you're letting me um, bring my, um, you know, cohabitating boyfriend with me to church and not making a big deal about it, you know? And so it's like, I mean, it's, it's, it's all around. And I, you know, I mean, the temptation to be liked, the temptation to be, to avoid conflict. I mean, these are real things. I'm not un unfamiliar with them, but as we've talked about it before, it's not a zero sum game, you know, like you don't, you don't make these compromises uh, without losing something else. Um, most notably your faith <laughs> over over time, because if you continue to profess that you're a Christian and yet don't uh, actually make any uh, movements towards exhibiting that in your life in any way, particularly when it would, would involve some form, form of self-sacrifice, well, don't be surprised if you wake up one day and you're on the a podcast uh, talking about your deconstruction, you know, or whatever, because that's, that's just, these are the steps towards unbelief. You know, Paul says, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you'll be saved. You know, it's not good enough um, simply to quote unquote believe because we are acting, living, moving beings who um, put that belief into action if it is in fact a living faith. It's not just a blanket desire to be liked, right? Because uh, these people don't care if, if Tucker Carlson doesn't like them. These people don't, don't right. care if, uh, if that's true. If, that's a good point. Uh, it, it's 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 to be liked by the right people, the people who have cultural cachet, and in cultural cachet and in a desirable avenue, like Tucker Carlson has cultural cachet among the you know white hillbillies in Appalachia, but he did, but he doesn't 
have it in the halls of academia, so or, or, or in the media. So we don't. We're not gonna. Uh, we're not gonna need him. We don't want him to like us. We want these the, the liberal leftist elite to like us because they're in they're in the social ascendancy. We we need their um, their approval, and we're gonna do everything we can. We're gonna shift our theology around. We're going to show, hey, you know, queer theory is totally compatible with Christianity. We just need to make a few tweaks here and there. But basically, we're on board. We're going to talk about the LGBT community and having open, friendly uh, churches. Um, Al Mohler talked this morning about the, this is Wednesday, the 27th. Al Mohler talked this morning about the... uh, In Oxford, in UK. Yeah, there's this new, uh, uh, a a queer, pro-queer group in the Church of England is labeling different churches, whether they're how friendly they are to red light green light yeah 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 yeah. so (laughs) if if your church gets a red light that means you are the people who are have identities other than the heteronormative identities unquote unquote quote unquote should avoid you like the plague because you're gonna you're gonna hurt them you're gonna they should not go to your church even more now yeah right (laughs) right right, right. (laughs) that's right i'm gonna continue to not go to church (laughs) how can i pay these people to come to america and give our church a red a red light put it in a newspaper (laughs) i'm pretty sure the red light can be seen from space and over your church man i think that's the uh... (laughs) no but this is the great wall of china and church of the good shepherd (laughs) so but this is this is not just a this is not just a uh an artifact of modern american or western evangelicalism it goes way back i mean i'm sure uh uh, jd you probably know more about this than i do but uh you know having being a a lutheran right right that's it he was he was trying to make christianity appeal to people who whose minds were full of kant and hegel and so he says well wipe everything else away the the ground and foundation of our doctrine is this utter sense of dependency that we have and that's how we can know that there's something there this god thing and then he, he builds his whole theology on top of it and hope hoping to appeal to the culture despisers of christianity that's right well he was reformed though matt I mean, just just for the record. So, I thought he was. Uh, I thought he grew up in a Lutheran Pietist family. Well, just because. Right? Well, he may have grown up in, but he um, but uh-huh. uh, he spoke German. So, but they have two different churches over there. You're exactly right. I mean, we talk about this a lot, but the, you know, Schleiermacher. Who was it that said? I think it was with Voltaire around the the Lisbon earthquake, which sort of inaugurated kind of philosophically the the idea of theodicy. You know, defending God. And this was uh, this has been written about by many people, but but it's interesting to observe that it was an uh, it was a thoroughly modern question. You know, defend yourself, God. You know, this is, of course we hear it in, in Job a little bit, but there was, his friends were actually just calling on him not to defend God but to curse God. You know, but this was actual sort of the presumption that we had um, as human beings, as creatures, to actually to to throw the the question of God's justice and His goodness back at Him in the face of human suffering, you know, totally was an exposure of the re-evaluation of of sinfulness, of the brokenness of creation, of, you know, the reality of wrath, all the things sort of Christian, the things that are substantial foundations of a Christian worldview had obviously uh, been eroded by the time you get to sort of make God defend himself. And so a lot of the modern project has been um, based in an embarrassment of the claims of God through his word on the world, you know, beginning with creation itself. You know, you look at Hebrews 11 and it says that 
you know, after the great definition of faith, it says, we know we have always uh, asserted that by faith, he created that which is out of nothing. You know, the, the article doctrine of creation has always been um, an article of faith. And you begin there down the line and bit by bit, year after year, century, decade after decade, um, those become increasingly um, embarrassing to an unbelieving world. And if you are still seeking affirmation from the unbelieving world, the only answer there is to minimize your convictions to the point where um, you are seen to be much more palatable to them than you are to anything that would look like Orthodox Christianity. And so, and of course, the reactions to this have been heavy handed also. You know, you look in the 19th century, particularly when deism and things were, were growing and infecting the church, you know, you had these kind of reactions to it, which were, in my opinion, well, it, I think you can look at wildly overstated. Well, for instance, this is when like the Roman Catholic Church started elevating their Marian dogma because they were like, well, if you don't believe these, well, you're really not going to believe these unless you're a true believer, you know. And Protestants had a version of that too, you know, with some of the some of the inerrancy debates, which I'm an inerrantist, you know, I've signed the, I mean, Chicago and everything, but some of the debates bordered on that type of loyalty check, you know, like this, this particular translation is in fact the word of God. And if you deviate from that, then you're not a true believer. You know, that was a reaction to the infiltration of this suspicious sort of modernizing because they were saying, well, you know, if you don't believe, we're going to have to ratchet up the, the criteria for what constitutes true belief so that we can maintain our position over against the encroach of real unbelief. And I think that's where we lost ground, because I think what you saw the um, some of the excesses of the fundamentalist people, which I think mostly was not excessive, but I think some of it was excessive, and the excesses of the Roman Catholic Church in the 19th century in face of deism, you know, lost some some people um, along the way. And so instead of engaging this sort of countervailing worldview, they just retreated from it. Um, and that was, um, you know, sowed the seeds of our current situation, for sure. We've sort of portrayed this class of academic or public theologian as kind of craven, sort of wanting cultural cachet and popularity and being willing to throw over the things they believe in order to achieve it. How much though, or how common do you think it is for somebody with good intent to sincerely try to reach an influential position to impact culture, but then to find themselves in a sort of frog in the hot water situation where just little by little, a thing that they don't think is maybe central to their faith or that's really going to make that much of a difference gets chipped away here and there. And all of a sudden they find even they don't notice that they're now outside the uh, fence line of creedal Christianity. I have a good example in the old, in our Anglican in our Anglican realm, we have those Orthodox bishops who said they were going to stay in the Episcopal Church and maintain the witness of the faith, right? And mm -hmm. and for several years, that was that seemed apparent that they were, but little by little, inch by inch, right? The question of I disagree with my fellow bishops about sexuality. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's and I think it's an essential issue. That's why these sorts of things will never happen in my diocese was the stand that many of them were taking you know, 10 years ago. Now it's, well, you know, Christians can agree to disagree about this, which is a statement that no Christian before 19 or 2010 would have even understood or 2003 would have even understood. We can agree to disagree about whether or not you can have a homosexual sex. No, we can't, <laughs> we can't, we can't disagree to agree, agree to disagree about that. 
And and so, you know, you had Bishop Brewer, of, I think he was in Florida. Um, Florida. Who, yeah, yeah, who was, who, this was about, I think it was close to seven or eight years ago. He had been so solid. He'd been so stalwart. And then, then he decides he's going to baptize uh, a child, quote unquote, adopted child, a, a partner and gay couple. And that was one of the, the first steps of this compromise. Uh, until now, we have the communion partner bishops, you know, of course, saying all kinds of things in their statements about the dismissal of Bishop or the the, the persecution of Bishop Love, um, but not not a single one of them thinks that the resolution that passed at the last general convention, which mandates that they facilitate the marriage, quote unquote, of two men or two women in their diocese, diocese, or they ordain a partnered cleric and for ministry in their diocese none of them thinks that compromises their faith that's 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 the frog in the in the boiling water i was gonna ask I was, this is an interesting this may be a moot question at this point having said what you just said um but uh with the state of the church of england and the state of the episcopal church as you just Mentioned it. I'm also thinking of the fact that we have two ACNA clerics who have regular columns in the New York Times, at least the online edition. I was going to ask whether or not Anglicanism provided some sort of guardrail against this kind of thing, pleasing the culture despisers or the attempt to do so, or does the potential for robes and incense and mystery which is still kind of cool even to the culture despisers does that make us as susceptible as anyone <laughs> well i think it did until we had this replanting as we've talked about with the various statements and documents and confessions because i think without something well clearly the 39 articles alone you know were not enough to to sort of maintain um orthodoxy but I think they would have been in conjunction with some loving church discipline um, from the outset, you know, when they were so when they begin to start being bent, um, you know, when Article six about the authority of Scripture, Article 20 about the limits of the church's overreach, you know, for instance, when they were beginning to be questioned or sort of downplayed. Well, then if we had stepped in then, you know, and the people in Christian responsibility had exercised it in the way that they had been entrusted then we wouldn't necessarily be in this position. But I think, uh, you know, we have the same situation in a sense, um, even with these documents, because we'll have to have bishops uh, in particular with the courage of their convictions to um, not let um, sort of heresy creep again. And again, we, we put people in these situations who are human, just like the rest of us. So we pray for them all the time for courage and conviction and and a real sense of responsibility that says this is going to be a hard decision to make, but this is the one that I've been given to do, to make. And so that's where, you know, we've talked about this before. Also, you know, like, for instance, with our bishop's statement on human sexuality and the whole discussion about self-identifying as a quote-unquote gay Christian, you know, that was a courageous thing to do. That was a inspiring move to make, very countercultural, one that still with people in the ACNA um, who are still part of our church or, or vocally in disagreement with it, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago. And yet they, they did that. And so they've taken the, the blow as it were, as they should, as the sheep chief shepherds of the diocese, I mean, of the province and the sheep sleep well at night, you know? And so I think that's where I hope and pray 
that as we move towards this more kind of conciliar Anglicanism that doesn't have, um, it has a real um, sort of covenantal structure where we actually are beholden to each other and we are accountable to each other across provinces, across the world, that there will be a sense of um, protection that we certainly have not been able to have in the last decades, if not century, of Anglicanism worldwide. But um, but there is a real hope going forward that that there will be these protections in place. I think it, it, it was definitely an overreaction and a misunderstanding of what was going on. But you guys remember when the the College of Bishops put out the statement on you know gay whether you put gay in front of Anglican or gay in front of Christian, the Nigerian Church misunderstood that statement. They thought they they thought we were saying the opposite of what we were saying. And they they issued a statement saying how the ACNA had you know departed from the faith, all that kind of thing. <laughs> and people were mad, and I understand that. But hey, I was I was glad for the vigilance on the part, <laughs> part of the Church of Nigeria. And that actually bodes well for the future. I mean, if someone in one of our dioceses decides to, you know, I don't know, if C4SO goes off the deep end, you know, it's not just that the other we have to rely on the other bishops in the College of Bishops to 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 rein that in. We have a whole world full of Anglicans, Anglican leaders who we are now bound to, who right. won't let us not rein that in. So it's a it's a nice it's nice to have that backup. For sure, and I mean, courage begets courage. I mean, no one we're never intended to stand alone um, as Christian people, you know, in being forced to to weather the consequences of Christian witness by ourselves, um, you know, and that's what the body is for. So I, I think. It was encouraging. That was encouraging. And it continues to be, you know, going to to Kigali was encouraging for that very reason. I mean, seeing the the level of conviction and, and joy, you know, in the midst of, of dramatically different living uh, you know, uh, socioeconomic situations in some case, nevertheless, the deep sense of, of unity and uh, joy around this confession of the truth um, was was just, well, it's something I'll never forget. And so and I, and I carry that with me in, in part you know, through these various conversations that, that we all have to have as rectors of Anglican churches, you know, what's the Anglican church? What's the difference? Why did you leave? You know, what's the, you know, distinctives, all these various things. And you what say, would well, those guys you know, say if they heard what I was saying now? Yeah, right. <laughs> They'd be like, excuse me, <laughs> yeah. you know, um, like, I mean, uh, and so I, I, um, I have a lot of hope, of course, but, you know, like anything else, these com- commitments require conviction and courage you know this is a three-point c sermon right there but and so it's easy to make a commitment it's 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 but the proof of it is in the carrying it out and so we're just on the ground floor of this really even with the acna itself i mean we're only 10 years into this you know replant and so the fact that we have some wild shoots is not surprising and the fact that we have some um sort of quizzical looks from people that just joined yesterday is not surprising but over time you know people are going to settle in to this way of, of worshiping the scripture tradition and reason that is a hallmark, of not a three-legged stool, but is, it, it is a distinctive aspect of our, of our polity. And I'm trusting that my children um, and grandchildren, if, if, if I get to see them, will be edified and nurtured and shaped by this church in a God-fearing, biblically orthodox way. So if we're not influence for influence's sake and willing to change what we believe and proclaim for the sake of that influence how how do we relate to a world whose elites do not want to hear what we have to say and are not preaching a similar sermon what 
what are the strategies that will actually work for gospel proclamation in the world today? It's, it's interesting. We're, we're preaching through Acts at the Shepherd, and you just you know, we're just in chapter twelve. Uh, but so far, you and started, I you started that you started that series like six years ago. <laughs> yeah, you agree. It's chapter twelve. We've been six years. <laughs> it's only been six months. But anyway, um, going through really so far, and I have read the rest of the book, so I know how it ends. Um, but so, so far, there has not been a single episode of pandering or or compromise on the part of the apostles or or the church. You know, there's There's been ample opportunities to preach to those who are in power. And to and to make the case for Christianity for those who are who are opposed to it and have influence, and in every single one of those cases, uh, the apostles stand up and say, "You're sinners. We serve the Lord of the heaven, heaven and earth. He's going to come and judge the earth, and He's called you to repent and believe." There's no other. There's no other strategy. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a fog machine won't work. Being you know host, having an art show in your church fine, gather people together, but don't think that's going to be the thing that makes people think you're acceptable. When people hear the real and true claims about Jesus Christ and the, the, the truths that the Bible reveals about themselves, the natural human reaction, the natural human phone reaction is going to be revulsion. It's going to be anger because the sinner doesn't want to be illumined by the light of the gospel or by the light of the law, actually. That's the reality that the entire New Testament bears witness to. So you can make your church into a restaurant with with the light show and the fog show and the whatever you want, but if you're actually going to be bear bear witness to the truth, that's the that's that's where the that's where the things get real. If you're willing to preach it. If you're not willing to preach it, well then yeah, you can have your restaurant, you can have your you can have your concert and you can have the, the movie sermon series during the summer and you can probably still make a lot of money and, but you're don't, but don't pretend, don't, don't kid yourself into thinking that you're impacting the culture or that you're, or that you're making inroads for the gospel. You're not, you're just, you're just entertaining people and slapping the, the name Jesus over it. You may um, be impacting the culture, but not for Jesus or the gospel. <laughs> exactly. It's a, I, it, I, I served exactly. an inner city church and we didn't know, I didn't know the terminology at the time, but we had a community organizer come into the area and um, sort of recruit or try to recruit us into their community organizing sort of Saul Alinsky get power to the people thing. And they tried to Christianize it by talking about, Jesus coming before Pilate. <laughs> I was like, first of all, um, Jesus was dragged before Pilate in chains. He didn't like work his way up the corporate ladder to get enough influence to get to success, like Michael and, J. Fox. <laughs> and when he got to Pilate, he didn't say, "Hey, Pontius, let's see what we can do together about the conditions in Judea." He said that he was the king of a different world, and mm. that is the message that is as it infuriated Pilate will infuriate those to whom it is proclaimed. Well, it is about that time. Thanks as always for listening to stand firm. You can keep the conversation going with us by being in touch. You can rate and review the podcast on iTunes, send us an email at mailbag at stand firm in faith.com or join the Anglicans for the gospel Facebook group. Thanks to JD Coke and Matt Kennedy 
I'm Nick Lannon, and Lord willing, we'll be back next week. Until then, by the grace of God and Jesus Christ, we'll be standing firm. Thank you.